0: Your first exit as an entrepreneur is the most important one by a long way. It's that de-risking of your life, essentially. All that sort of stuff that happens in that instant is deeply relieving. Two years ago, you had nothing. Suddenly you've got something that's doing 4 million of revenue.
1: I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. In this series, I'm getting under the skin of some of the UK's and the tech world's most interesting founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs, finding out what drives them, what keeps them awake at night and what they've learned along the way that can help us in our lives too. Welcome to The Ascent. In this episode, I'm talking to Titus Sharp, a born entrepreneur who I'm sure you'll agree is super bright whilst at the same time, humble and hugely disarming is a true one-off. He's also a lead generation and ad tech pioneer, former CEO of MBF, winner of the Sunday Times Best Company to Work For award, and member of Tenzing's Entrepreneurs Panel. Titus has always known where he was going and why. He has built up and sold a number of businesses, taking the learnings and improving upon them each time with repeated success. His career has gone from more of a traditional entrepreneurial hustle to premeditated plans, meticulously executed. This has culminated in founding MBF, where they've taken the mundane, inconsistent world of lead generation to build a scientifically driven, cutting edge, even bleeding edge global offering that has them rubbing shoulders with the tech behemoths Google, Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy. I'd love to start with your earliest entrepreneurial memories.
0: Uh, Probably, I developed a slime at my primary school that I sold in glass jam jars and uh, I sold them for about, I can't remember, it was about 20p, PE, a jam jar of slime <laughs> and they were made out of uh, sort of colouring flour and water and the issue you have with flour and water, that it ferments mm. and, uh, and the glass jam jars started exploding and I had to do a product recall. At my primary school. So, it, my first attempt at creating products was a slightly dangerous and <laughs> disconcerting one, but it didn't stop me.
1: Was that a common sort of theme throughout growing up? That you were sort of fingers in pies?
0: Oh my gosh, yes, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I was always coming up with new business ideas. I remember selling tadpoles at school, which I know is highly illegal now, but back then <laughs> I think it was. Uh, selling Conkers. I'd try and sell you know, anything and everything to to everyone. And then it carried on, you know, all the way through secondary school. I was always scheming brewing cider underneath the school basement and then selling it to people uh, highly illegally. And then at university, I I, I basically paid for my university via, I uh, got together a sort of uh, disco set up and I used to rent out disco equipment to people, DJs and stuff at university, which kept me in pints. So yeah, being an entrepreneur from day one.
1: Have you ever thought about why that was? What interested you in it? Or was it something about your um, upbringing?
0: I had a pretty tough start to life. And I think there's something about that. I think there's a survival instinct. And I, and I've always been very mathematically driven. And so I love numbers and figures. And so I think it's probably the combination of survival instinct and just being very mathematically driven, I think, and sort of loving games as well. In a way, entrepreneurship's kind of like a game, and you've got to kind of fathom it out mm. and work out what works. And it's like a strategy that you apply that you know, gets you to be an entrepreneur, I guess. So probably those three things, I'd say. So
1: what course did you do at university? Was that linked to business?
0: No, no, it wasn't. I actually started studying biology. And on the first day I went in and they started talking about microbes and viruses. And I thought, this is so boring. I want to be talking about elephants and tigers. And I realised that it wasn't right for me. And then uh, I looked around at what other... Courses were out there and so, discovered this really interesting one, which was sort of a combination of psychology and computer science and the main sort of theme of it is artificial intelligence. This was back in 1994. Mm-hmm. And AI was quite a new field then, and uh, it really sort of ticked a lot of boxes for me. So it had aspects of biological science and psychology, but a load of engineering Mm. and computer science as well. So it kind of really suited me as sort of my curiosity for people, but also my curiosity for engineering and maths and computer science. And uh, I absolutely loved it. But when Mm. when I came out of university, the only jobs you could really get at that time were military jobs, and I did not want to work in the military. That was not my calling and realised that, you know, I probably had to try something else. But now when you look at you know, the field of artificial design is so big. Amazing. But back then it was it was predominantly a military applications. So mm. that was the reality of the situation. So I went for a more traditional sort of comp science route of programming. You know, I sort of did the classic graduate thing where I applied to sort of various graduate schemes and got for seven or eight jobs. And I thought, oh, which one's going to pay me the best? And I, and I opted for that one. Foolishly, I think it was a totally foolish, mm. wrong decision. And I ended up working at UBS in the city in the trading systems department. And I found it the most demotivating place in the world. I, I, I just did not enjoy it one bit. And I found the people very unpassionate there. And I knew within an hour of being there, I did not want to be there. (laughs) So I started looking for other things and that's when I kind of hit upon the startup scene. So do you remember leaving UBS? That was a seminal moment. It was actually. I had this really amazing day. It was sort of like a Dick Whittington day. I didn't know what the future held at all. And I remember walking across London Bridge and I had this sort of like amazing moment with this beggar who was on the street and I had all my books like sort of all about sort of trading and finance and stuff, all my books with me. And I, and I gave this beggar all my books and I gave him like 20 quid and we had a really, really amazing sort of moment. I said, yeah, I still want to be in London and things are going to be OK because I didn't really have a job to go to. I was just sort of wanted wanted out. And I remember sitting on the bridge chatting to this beggar for like probably like an hour. It was really amazing. And uh, we had a real heart to heart. And uh, I just remember that was how I finished UBS.
1: What was the first startup you got involved with?
0: They were developing apps, you know, websites and apps for people. And they started building their own software called, it was called PeopleCube. And they built this sort of uh, HR management tool, basically. And, you know, it got rolled up into, into a larger HR play. But, yeah, that was um, that was my first one. I absolutely loved the culture. And they sort of allowed you to, you know, think outside the box and forge your own career as how you wanted to. And it was just very nice being so free. And I realised that this was what I wanted to do. But then at that point, I got a Fulbright scholarship. So I'd done my AI and I'd done very well. and I'd published various scientific papers in artificial intelligence. And... Off the back of that, I'd been offered this Fulbright scholarship to Caltech. Uh, and I started building robots, basically. Wow. I realised that the culture that I really wanted was in tech startups. It was so, you know, it was just brilliant fun. You know, and it felt like, you know, in the way that sort of university felt. That's what I found about the tech startup mm-hmm. world. It, fit, it still felt like university. I realised that was my calling. And uh, after I'd gone and done six weeks with this PhD, I came back to London with a view to doing my own thing. And so that was my start into tech land.
1: And the first thing you started up, I seem to remember something being to do with the university at Oxford, was that right?
0: Yeah, that's right. So I had gone to this talk about social network theory, how essentially you are a product of your social network, as in the people you know define who you are. And you know there's a concept of six degrees of separation. You're only ever six degrees away from anyone. And this was before social networks really existed. And I was really fascinated by this. And I also thought, you know, you've got this huge, huge group of people at university who you're friends with, and they all disappear off. And in a way, email addresses change. But to be able to maintain those sort of more tangential links, maybe the people that you, you know, you chat to in the street, but you maybe didn't have their number on your phone or whatever, those types of people you'd sort of lose track of. And uh, I thought what you need is sort of like an online social network, essentially, Mm. and uh, we launched this social network. We did it just focus on Oxbridge to start with, because we thought that's a very high net worth community generally. Let's focus on them. And we've got about 4,000 Oxford and Cambridge, both current students and graduates, onto mm-hmm. the platform. But we had no idea. The only thing, we partnered with a recruitment firm. We did it for two years or something. But we couldn't think beyond these 5,000. Know, I think we had 5,000 people by the end, but we couldn't really yeah. think what we do with them other than... You know have a recruiter contact them yeah so that so, would have been
1: what late 90s I suppose. yeah that
0: was over the yeah over the millennium uh so yeah wow. 99 2001
1: that sort of time remarkably parallel isn't it sort of harvard and knoxbridge and just yeah. uh what sort of four or five years too soon so, Yeah. what was the the next step on the ladder so we'd sold the business to this recruitment agency then we got made redundant by the recruitment firm
0: and there was about six of us and we decided why don't we try and set up a software development agency and we started building that, and we were struggling to find good techies at reasonable prices in London. And we ended up outsourcing a lot. We ended up buying a small software development business in Cape Town. So we ended up spending a lot of time in Cape Town, uh, which was great fun. I mean, wow. we used to we used to go surfing every morning. Well, who were you developing for then? What was the sort of client base? I think there's sort of three sectors: we were in sort of London-based brands, mm. NGOs, and political sort of organisations seem to be our sort of niches. It uh, just mm. happened that we sort of built up expertise in those areas and got referrals that way. We were trying to work out how to grow it, how to grow this business. And we'd been approached by this sort of Yellow Pages style directory. And they basically said to us, why don't you get some leads from our directory? And we paid them like something like £200 a month for the privilege of being on their directory. And they sent us leads. And it was really, really useful for the business. Mm. And it helped us grow. We took new staff on, we took new salespeople on, Off the back of these leads but sometimes we'd get 10 leads and next month we might get one lead and so it was a great service from the fact that we could grow our business but it wasn't reliable and that was the issue It was inconsistent it was totally inconsistent and so we sort of said well what we want is a service where you can turn you know it's like a tap where you can turn it on and off as and when you need it but you can get as much as you want because sometimes you really need those leads and other times you don't and also just paying per lead seems so much more sensible than paying a set fee that you're never sure how much you're going to get It was £200 for this directory listing. So we thought, why don't we do it pay-per-lead? And it was a new concept back in, this was 2003, I think, we started building uh, Mm. our first lead generation business. So Approved Index was our sort of next iteration of business, really, and that was a lead generation business back in 2003 that we we launched and uh, we hired a load of graduates to run it. And uh, four years later, we sold it to Reed Elsevier, which was which was amazingly fast turnaround from a startup to an exit.
1: Oh, wow. So you've got this uh, software development house in South Africa and then struggling to grow it. You basically stumble across lead generation that somebody else is doing for you quite inconsistently. And then you guys, I guess, being AIs and mathematicians, rip it apart and try and make that more consistent. You then sort of split the businesses effectively, did you?
0: Yes, we did. So we sort of split off Proved Index and the, the software business is called Moody, So we split the two off and it, sort of, it started growing way faster than the software business. It was like three times the speed of growth than the software development agency. So it was obvious where to focus. Yeah. In a way, the software agency got less focus and we started focusing more and more of our time. And what we should really have done is killed the software agency, but we never quite had the heart to do it. <laughs> um, so we ended up selling that. So we sold the approved index to, to Read Elsevier. We sold the software agency to a, another agency.
1: Why did you sell to Reed Elsevier? How big were you at the time?
0: Uh, we are about sort of 50 staff, probably 4 million revenues, something like that. So it wasn't very, hadn't scaled very much. But when you get a big corporate like that, I think it's interesting because I feel like, you know, your first exit as an entrepreneur is the most important one by a long way because obviously... It's that de-risking of your life, essentially. It's Mm. like paying off the mortgage, being able to afford school fees for your kids, all that sort of Mm. stuff that happens in that instant is deeply relieving and releasing. And I think, you know, there's always a sort of underlying level of stress. You know, you're so nervous and you're only just getting used to the fact that two years ago you had nothing and then suddenly you've got something that's doing 4 million of revenue and you're like, This isn't going to lie, you know, you can't believe where you are. You feel sort of like, oh, my God, I'm so ridiculously fortunate that you sort of like, you're so nervous about it not being there that you sort of, you know, there's an insecurity, I think. And also, I just found the feeling of relief on that first sale was profound. And I've never, never, you know, I've sold other businesses since, but the first sale is magnificent in a way. That was a liberating thing and a very privileged position to be in, but also very liberating.
1: Yeah. so just picking up the chronology because around millennium was the oxbridge social network and then yeah then you set up Is it? i think it's Moodia, which is a software development team of which was born the lead generation and then that was then sold in, into reed in what 2008 was that was yeah and yeah. you did a year there yeah and so mbf was born what 2009 previously the business had been quite evolutionary but now was it there's a specific business plan and you have much more deliberate how were you going to do it that was materially different than last time?
0: Being global, I think, was kind of our core thesis. It's like, why don't we try and find business that we can scale globally? One of the other founders had been working for, uh, for another sort of um, performance marketing business, and uh, he was telling me one day how he'd worked a bit for the market research industry. And I said, oh, that's interesting. You know, you, you, On Gumtree, when you post a job on Gumtree, you get something like 5,000 applications. This was, this was back in 2009, and I was telling him this. And he said, what, 5,000 applications on Gumtree? Yeah, it costs you about £10 to post, and you get 5,000 applications. And we did the sums on that. It's like, what? That's you know, they, To acquire that many, you know, it just was profound how much impact that, that Gumtree ad could have. And so what we realised is the market research industry wanted to recruit people to do market research on. And there was this Gumtree source. And we started, like, Tom phoned up his old contacts at the market research industry to say, look, we can get you people to do market research on. Are you interested? And they said, yes, please. And they were paying us something like £10 per person. And we could acquire them for, like, one P on Gumtree. Yeah, yeah. Or something yeah, like yeah. that. And we just realised there was this big one. And then we realised that Gumtree... You know, people started clocking onto that, and so we so we moved to Google basically, and we started doing it on Google in a big way, and we took that business global, and that was really our first success. Matchmaking people who want to do market research with people who mm. looking for people to do market research, and that sort of gave us very nice sort of margins and helped us grow massively. And then we started doing more lead, you know, generally generating leads for lots of other sectors off the back mm. of that, and that gave us a nice cash buffer to get going on.
1: Describe to me what MBF was like after you established it. You know, what was its kind of elevator pitch It's kind of core offering.
0: My wife always says how bad I am at pitching my own business. Uh, (laughs) It's probably quite true because you sort of like uh, always take too technical a hat on it. But basically, we generate very highly qualified sales leads for growing and ambitious organisations. It sounds quite trivial, lead generation, but actually there's, there's a lot to it. And obviously, if you really want to scale lead generation, you need to be excellent at marketing on multiple different channels. You need to have Amazing data capabilities because it's all you win or lose by your data analytics really, mm. and you need to have great technology.
1: So you try and find this kind of industry which obviously values leads, so it's got a reasonable average contract value or purchase price. So like Xerox or or photocopying, and then you guys go and kind of own the space. Let's say you buy I love photocopies dot com. And that becomes the thump of knowledge. So if suddenly if I'm running an office and think, I need to buy a photocopy and I Google it, then I'll come across this website and it will look highly informed or is highly informed and it builds trust up and I can understand my purchasing decision and therefore from there I click through to a lead and you, that stage, sell that lead to Xerox or Canon or someone. But it's clear that I'm very interested in buying, I've done some research, I've been informed, so it's highly qualified lead and... Those guys struggle to generate those leads in the same way, and therefore they'll pay you, and you guys profit out of the arbitrage. Is that
0: fair? Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So but that, you know, that's roughly what we do. Yeah. But I would say that you know you, that's a very sort of organic, and we do have you know lots of sites that, that have you know you know I love photocopiers and there's you know all manner of different sort of mm. areas that we we operate sort of niche sites like that in. But also you know MVF is like one of the biggest advertisers on Twitter. It's one of the yeah. biggest advertisers on Instagram. It's one of the biggest advertisers on LinkedIn. It's one of the biggest advertisers on Google. So there's this huge, deep expertise in paid marketing as well as organic marketing. Yeah, so so essentially it's doing that, but it's doing it across every single channel.
1: So you're at the cutting edge, really, of what Facebook, Google, Instagram are doing.
0: Yeah, exactly. We, we, we've we got such strong relationships with these, you know, because we're like one of their largest advertisers. We get access to all their beta programs it could be something like a new type of demographic targeting or it could be, you know, a new sort of ad format or a new platform completely. That sort of entirely new format of advertising, that sort of thing that our team laps up and, and thoroughly enjoys. And constantly these ad platforms are evolving all the time. And that's how by being, you know, bleeding edge on ad tech. And, and being the people using it, and having access to all their beta programs gives you mm. huge better edge because you can develop all your knowledge before everyone else even sees the product. Yeah. You're like a year ahead of everyone before they even get access to the product. So it
1: gives you a sort of head start on the competition and so the business model I and mean, still rapid changing going on and one of the things that people who are interested in the kind of lead generation get from our portfolio companies get lost is that difference between sales and lead generation when does lead generation stop and when does sales take over and have you unpicked that conundrum and where was your real understanding of driving sales hard coming from
0: Well, I I think, you know, for any sales-driven organisation, your sales culture is the fundamental, most important thing you've got to get right. And also the sort of science of sales. You know, when I was starting out, I always felt that you get good salespeople and bad salespeople, and that's essentially the fundamentals of sales. And there's not much more to it than that. But when you speak to people who've got large sales organisations that are very successful... You realise there's so much science in sales and it's really the science and engineering process of sales, I think, is where lots of people don't realise how you need to engineer sales organisations. I don't like the concept of there's a marketing qualified lead, now it becomes a sales qualified lead, let's pass it over the fence. You know, marketing and sales should be working together all the way through the process. And continuing as well you know that really that relationship should continue all the way into customer success you know you should be marketing your customer success to the organization you're, you're, you're selling into so so i don't subscribe to the you know well we've generated a thousand marketing qualified leads and a hundred of them passed in the sales qualified really it should be the marketing team should be seeing how much revenue they can generate and it should be a very very cohesive integrated mm. process with sales rather than a
1: yeah, look, there's some leads. Good luck. When was the bit when you realised that it could be a science and you could unpick it?
0: Well, I, 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 I met this guy called uh, Mans Hortman, and he had the fastest growing software business in the world at one time. It was called ClickTech. They were a Swedish business based out of Malmo. And uh, he grew it from something like 1 million revenues to, to 500 million revenues in, in four years. And I was like, what? how on earth did you grow up that quick? It was just insane growth. And uh, he said, said it was all about creating this incredible scalable sales culture. And he just started talking to me about business. And what I realized, every time you talk to him, he knew so many KPIs that I had not a clue about in my organization. It was like not an inkling about, you know, what are the ones that he really focused on that really opened my eyes? You know, it was the average sales delivered by a new salesperson after three months was a really important KPI to it. And I'd never even contemplated it because essentially when you think about that, if your average sales, for, for a new salesperson, the average sales after three months, if you are hiring like 20 salespeople a year or you know, however many it is, there's a compounding effect there. But then there's a velocity effect. So if you're accelerating out of your sales training and you're doing £5,000 a month on average across all your salespeople after three months, then the velocity you're going at is is such a great trajectory. But if you're only doing 4,000, but then you times it by however many salespeople you hire each year, the velocity impact on that curve of a new salesperson starting and being out of the blocks rapidly and selling big accounts, that is fundamental to the success of any sales organisation. And so we at MVF had to really think about, you know, we had our sales director out selling. And, you know, it's like, you know, he shouldn't be selling. He should be engineering a process that makes it mm. amazing for us to take on new salespeople and, and grow sales talent. That's his entire focus. You know, he's just a report. You know, his reporting was, ah, oh, you know, this is our sales this month. But that's not the correct KPI. It's all the, you know, the underlying driver is how quickly are you developing great salespeople? That should mm. be the underlying. And, and that we had to completely change our focus. And it was a really hard cultural thing to get your head around. Like, we're taking our best sales yeah. leader off sales actually get him to do training is that crazy and it just felt so weird but we did it and it has like it's been the success of MVF that really
1: yeah and now you hire people very you're very very deliberate in everything you do in that yeah and, and you know so. we
0: did it you we know we did regression analysis on you know we looked at our sort of 30 sales people that we'd had in our organization and looked at all the bad ones as well as all the good ones and looked at the traits that made them good and the traits that made them bad And created a blueprint of the type of person that would, you know, succeed at MVF. And, you know, we discovered that smart graduates were better than, you know, non-graduates because they could talk at board level. And that was really important. We were selling into board levels of type people, Mm -hmm. you know, CMOs, CROs, sales directors, marketing directors, those types of people They had to be able to, you know, talk very intelligently about growing businesses because that's what everyone wanted to do. So having highly smart, likeable salespeople in our organisation was was really important. And then we looked at another trait that we found was um, had they done something entrepreneurial before in their past? So had they started a business or, you know, run a, created a live, you know, done something entrepreneurial in their past was a really good indicator that they were going to be really good salespeople and we we know we'd had sort of like secondhand car salesmen selling for us who were sort of like you know would sell their granny to you know mm. it was that type of we had to get rid of that culture of that sort of you if you think about what that does, the projection that it gives if you 've got sort of someone who's wheelering dealering out there selling your organization, what do your clients think of that you know you've yeah. got a you know if you 've got really smart, trustworthy, honorable guys out there who are really lovely to chat to. You know, know a lot about growth and business those are the types of people that people want to buy from and 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 it represents your salesperson is representative of your organization i think there's almost some people don't
1: get that when you first bought in private equity what year was that that was 2015 okay so it'd been sort of five six years up and running on your own effectively bootstrapped or yep. founder funded yeah how big was it when you
0: sold out I was just trying to remember what we were doing I mean we have probably about 200 staff back then
1: wow okay so you must have quickly scaled the business so in 2030
0: we came number one in the Sunday Times tech track and that was off the back of enormous growth in those early years so we Mm. found a couple of brilliant sectors to work in in lead generation and our business went absolutely ballistic in those first few years and it was absolutely crazy we were running so fast at that business and i think we were doing roughly about 30 million revenues when we sold, I'd have to look it up, yeah. Where. but yeah, so for about 200 staff, 30 million revenues, that sort of size. What were the biggest
1: changes as a business from bringing private equity?
0: Well, I found it very, very hard at the start. I think when you're used to being bootstrapped and you're used to very, very fast decision making and not really having anyone challenge you it's culturally challenging. And so I think that was the biggest thing that me, I was CEO at that time, I struggled with it, I think, for about a year before I kind of got used to it. Mm. And sometimes actually looking back on some of the challenges they did, I wish I'd sort of listened to them more at the time. Because what happens is you realise it takes time to learn what private equity are good at. What they're not good at is strategically in your industry, you know it way better than them. They can't touch you on strategic now around your industry there's no way Mm. because they've they've only been in it a year max or been looking at it for Mm. a year but what they are good at is hiring senior people and they're very good on what you do with your office and they're very good on how you acquire other businesses integrate them that sort of thing is where you learn from private equity all this stuff that they've seen time and time again and the people on your board have seen 100 acquisitions rather than you you might have acquired one company and so it's all those other experiences that they will have had that you haven't had that they can bring to bear on your organisation. You know, I think it's easier if you're venture capital back going to private equity because in a way you've always had investors there, but we didn't have investors. It was purely the people running the business own
1: the business. You were initially founder and CEO when you went into private equity and then at some stage you stepped back from CEO. i have been running
0: MVF for I think eight years and if I'd kept going I think my health would have really suffered. Um, mm. I was just a bit worn out. You've got to run fast as a CEO. I was pretty exhausted by the combination of having young kids and being CEO. And I needed to have a less frenetic life, I think, for a bit. So handed over to a great guy, got a brilliant CEO now who was our CFO. And what MVF has done amazingly well is build a phenomenal, phenomenal culture. And, you know, we were rewarded with the number one place in the Sunday Times. Best companies to work for and that is a result of years of of work on culture mm. and he totally totally gets how absolutely fundamental to mvf that is i think he's evolved the culture better than i had in my time And, uh, you know, he's done a fantastic job. So I just felt like if I continue at this pace for another five years, I'm going to be a broken man. So so I had to take some time
1: out. And was that something you initiated or was it in conversations with your colleagues? It was me
0: initiating it. Um, We did a sort of process and we looked at internal and external. Uh, I spoke to various people externally Mm -hmm. and decided that, Michael T was definitely the best man for the job. I think, uh, retrospectively, I would still be running it if I hadn't had three children, Mm -hmm. and my wife worked at the same time. My wife has a very successful career in her own right, and so the combination of two careers, three kids, and being a CEO of a 500-person organisation wasn't compatible mm. for a long period of time so you know i think in my next ventures i will look to try and maybe do something that's maybe not quite so <laughs> so big and successful so something a bit more so sleepy perhaps <laughs> that suits me a bit better that i don't have to run mm. quite so hard at it so talk about then personal development at any stage as you get any coaching i like getting mentoring from other entrepreneurs and i always find mm. the best entrepreneurs are those people who've just done what you're trying to do yeah so it's the person like a year ahead of you you know the person if you've got a f- 500-person organisation, the person with a 1,000 people. So there's been some very influential people in my life, in, a, in my sort of CEO network, I'd sort of say. You know, Jonathan Quinn from Well First has been very influential, mm. massive admirer of him. Glenn, who obviously now works at Tenzing, I, you know, huge, mm. hugely useful. Man Saltman from ClickTech, you know, he's been amazing at helping us think about culture and sales organisations. Uh, so it's having this network of CEOs that, you know, I think for anyone in any area of business, you know, it's the people who've just done what you're trying to achieve that you should be speaking to because they can learn that. And the thing is, when you're speaking to them, there'll be a load of stuff that you've done that they haven't achieved. And so, but you've got to go and think about what, what do you think they might want to
1: know from me? So Mm. you've got to share some knowledge to get some knowledge, basically. Yeah. I seem to remember you at one stage took all your management team on a, was it a Tony Robbins course?
0: Yeah, so when I was 18, I went to, uh, I did a Tony Robbins course. Um, and it was like a, a weekend long course. And you went and walked on hot coals. And it, it had a profound impact. I was a troubled teenager. Right. You know, my mum died when I was, I was one. My dad had been in prison for for, for 10, 10, 15 years. You know, I was, I was a messed up teenager. And uh, I found that uh, one of the exercises you do on Tony Robbins is um, you basically, you go and you project what your life would be like in the worst-case scenario, like five years and ten years ahead and 20 years ahead. Right. And this yeah. is you sort of like, you know, drug addict on the street. And you project that. And you do this other one where you tr- project the ultimate life. You know, it's you successful with a lovely family and a lovely location and a lovely house. And you do that projection. And that, that act of sort of projecting where you want to be in 20 years and how you want your life to sort of, you know, it was amazing as a troubled 18-year-old. It was profoundly impactful, that, on me. And then, then he gets you to set a load of steps to, to go in the right direction. And and I think it was setting of those steps that you kind of do in that, you know, week, you know weekend-long thing was absolutely profound and, you know, they've all come true. It's wow. been absolutely amazing. And, and so, 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 so Tony Robbins, we sort of let our staff go on Tony Robbins' courses... I'm, I'm not sure if it's i have no idea if it's still a policy at mbf i hope it is you know when i was ceo loads and loads and loads of staff did tony robbins and some people instantly <laughs> the next day they come back go left i'm, <laughs> I'm leaving Titus, so i'm leaving i'm gonna go set my own business and it's like you know, way that's great it's like you know they probably wanted to do that in the half heart hearts and they have the confidence to do it and you might have got a year more out of them but in a way you're sending them off for the course they want to do and it's like You know, I've had two examples. I can think of two people who came back about a week later. They resigned and they were out and off doing off doing their own thing. And it's fantastic in a way. It's like what better privilege than help people get on their own path? Rather than that's how I feel like it's great because you're you're helping people achieve what they want to achieve. But loads of people you know don't and get loads out of it for their own personal life and they can be more effective at work as well. So it's quite a rounded you know. Tony Robbins helps people in certain situations. I think it's right for everyone. But for me yeah. as an 18-year-old, profoundly impactful.
1: So do you think that tough upbringing has driven you? Or you've achieved a phenomenal amount in still relatively short space of time, not you know, three or four successful businesses and all, all exits. Do you think that's a core cool driver or is it actually that yeah, it doesn't yeah. define you?
0: Yeah, I do, I do think there's sort of like kids with troubled backgrounds, I think, there's a sort of this moment in teenage life where you sort of choose whether you're the victim or the survivor, really. Mm. And, and, and mm. I see people in business who have chosen to be survivors and there is something in their nature that no one else has. In a way, they're so driven. Mm. I also think you get it in refugees and people, who've, you know, sort of immigrants. Mm. Very often you see that sort of like raw drive to try and you know to create a stable environment for their family, because in a way, if you come from a relatively you know soft background and everything's been yeah. cushy, you know, you know, yeah. I, could, I could work quite hard, but I don't need to. You know, I'm going to see my, you know, I'll go out for a drink tonight instead of working till midnight. It's that sort mm-hmm. of like I have to work till midnight because I have to create an amazing environment yeah. for my kids, and it's that difference I think that can have a profound impact. And obviously, with privilege comes there's a load of stuff you get, you know, all that you know, amazing education you get with privilege, but with hardship, there comes a sort of like, sometimes there comes a work ethic and a drive that you don't see elsewhere.
1: So, Tarsus, i can going to do a few quick file questions, if that's OK. Yeah, absolutely. Your favourite or most sort of recommended book?
0: For biggest life impact, I'd say Tony Robbins. Mm. For book that's impacted MVF the most, I'd probably say The Sales Acceleration Formula because it helped us structure our sales organisation incredibly well. Uh, seven Habits of Highly Successful People, as well. I, but Tony Robbins, Waking the Giant Within, great book. Go on his course if you if you want to try and program your life uh, in a, in a in a structured, thoughtful, uh, well laid out manner. Go on Tony Robbins' course um, if you want to think about how successful people operate. Uh, seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, and if you want to org- organize your sales organization the sales acceleration form
1: most inspiring or inspirational person to you along your journey there's been there's been lots and I'd sort of
0: say my parents have been hugely influential Tony Robbins is you know his course was very influential but I'd sort of say probably Jules my business partner he's taught me a lot about uh, sort of being incredibly open transparent and honest with everyone uh, and so I'd sort of say Jules has
1: been Probably the biggest oh, biggest
0: influence on my life, I'd say.
1: Yeah, that's great. And then um, the most important qualities, you think, for an entrepreneur? There's a load of stuff you need. I
0: don't think, I don't think you know, mm. you can't really, there's probably t- 10 dimensions that you need to be an entrepreneur, um, and you, you kind of need quite a lot of them. So there's probably a basket full of stuff that you need, <laughs> like, you know, you need to be incredibly driven, uh, you need to be a very clear communicator, you need to be able to rally people, uh, you know, you need to be able to, you know, win trust. Um, yeah, you need to, you know, you need to be, you need to be experienced enough that you can talk knowledgeably about lots of different subjects. Um, you need to be able to, you know, strike up, you know, friendships and relationships quickly.
1: Uh, there's a load of stuff you need. Thank you, Titus. You've been very, very kind of your time. I appreciate that. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks, thanks so much for having me on. really appreciate it. Lovely to chat. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much to Titus. I hope you enjoyed listening to that. What I love about Titus is that he's both very instinctive about what he wanted to be and the journeys that he has taken, and also very deliberate about how he's built his career. He's taken a number of businesses from startup through to successful exit, and he has jumped straight back in and done the next one very quickly and deliberately. He had a hugely challenging upbringing, which maybe drives him, but it has given him a great sense of clarity about what he wants to be and by choosing not to be a victim he's become very fulfilled by his journey. He's one of the most quintessentially British people I know and yet it was probably one of the most quintessentially American people in Tony Robbins who changed his life. It's inspiring that he so passionately wants to share the love with like-minded people because he's so aware of the hard-won good fortune that has come his way since. And talking of sharing, as a member of our Entrepreneurs Panel here at Tenzing, the many and varied people we work with get to benefit from all of Titus's extensive and inspiring business experience. It's gold dust. If you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Titus and want to hear more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing or The Ascent on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd also love for you to rate and review this episode. And please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to future ones. You can find out more on tensing.pe on Twitter, LinkedIn, or on Instagram. I've loved talking to you. Bye for now.